You're listening to episode 26 of Chat About Children with Sonia Bestelich. Let's chat. Discover children at a whole new level. Be empowered to grow with the children in your life. Welcome to Chat About Children with Sonia Bestelich. Hi there and welcome to Chat About Children where we chat about all things children and empower you to grow with the children in your life. Today's episode is all about practical teaching strategies when it comes to autism spectrum disorder. It's an area that we're constantly learning about as parents, carers and professionals. So today I'm not going to spend too much time with an intro. I'm just going to let you know that we're talking about very practical strategies when it comes to helping children with things such as addressing their connection and engagement, helping children successfully transition between tasks and activities. And we also talk about how to better understand and respond to behavior of children that are on the spectrum. It's a fascinating chat. And I have this chat with Sue Larkey, who is an autism specialist and and known author in this area. So without further ado, let's get the chat started. So joining me today is Sue Larkey. She's a highly qualified autism specialist and author of several books and resources. Sue is uniquely positioned within the education system, having taught both as a primary school teacher and a special education teacher. She has taught students with an autism spectrum disorder in the mainstream and at a special autism school. She combines this practical experience with extensive research, having completed a master's in special education and is currently undertaking a doctorate of education, focusing on inclusive education. Sue is unashamedly passionate about her mission, which is to inspire parents and educators and teach them how to make it a success. Welcome to Chat About Children, Sue. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm so excited. Well, Sue, as I said just before recording, I met you a number of years ago, a speech pathologist just wanting to know more about autism spectrum disorder and how I could best help my clients, particularly those little kids that were coming in. And for us, for speech pathologists and other allied health, we were really looking into who can help us understand this. And I found that you were an absolutely invaluable professional that had so much to offer. So I'm so happy that you're joining us today. And today's topic is very much about practical teaching strategies. So I'm excited about how much the listeners are going to get from today's episode. But just to start off, Sue, can you just help us understand a little bit about what got you so many years ago, so passionate about the area of autism spectrum disorders? Oh, thank you so much. So look, I really appreciate the intro and what got me passionate and keeps me passionate is exactly what you were just saying, actually, that probably like you, I learned at uni what is autism, not what to do. So I was a mainstream teacher, 25 five-year-olds in my class, which dare I say 30 years ago was the ratio. And I had a little boy with autism in my class called Michael and I just didn't know what to do and I adored him. And the Autism Association would drop in like once a term and sort of leave me some stuff. But I just felt, I honestly felt like I was failing him and I didn't know what to do. So that absolutely inspired my passion to go and learn more because I wanted to help him and his family and help the other children understand him. So that was sort of what ignited my passion. I'll be honest and thought I'd head off to uni, do my master's and sort it out. And truth is I'm still learning because every child I meet is so different. So for me, I'm still learning or I meet people like you who I help the kids you know. And so I guess I'm a born teacher and I'm always about how can I help teach parents, teachers, speeches, anyone who 
can then support the kids. So that's where my real inspiration and passion keeps coming from. That is fantastic. And it sounds like, you know, my next question is what's kept you so passionate? And I think it's really that ability to share your knowledge and know that others are using it to help others and have that domino effect, if you like. Would that be right? Yeah. And look, every day, I probably answer about 100 emails a day. And every day I get an email from someone that, you know, A, you've made a difference to them, but their child or like this morning, I had one from a beautiful respite carer who had just two children were put in respite with autism that never worked with kids with autism for what can I do? So every day I'm engaging with people feeling like they're coming from where I was 30 years ago. Like that poor respite carer suddenly got two children. She's never had kids with autism. What does she do? And she reaches out to me and I just feel, I don't know. So I love the fact people reach out and I can help them and make a difference. Yeah. Yeah. It's very humbling. It's very humbling. Very, very. So over the years, Sue, what do you think, in your opinion, what have we got better at in terms of understanding when it comes to autism spectrum disorders? And I say probably mostly from a professional's point of view, but I'm sure over the decades you get asked the same question. You think, you know, I've talked about this over and over and over again, but you're you're chipping away at the education and the awareness. But is there anything that you kind of think you know, over time, I feel that this area or this question or the understanding here is a little bit better when it comes to autism spectrum disorders? Yeah, look, that is a great question. Look, I think the fact the internet's made a huge difference. I mean, when I first started 30 years ago, parents couldn't Google what is autism, what to do. But the other side of that, it can be quite overwhelming for parents. And Often they can go down what I call a rabbit hole that, or spend a lot of money on something that you and I, having worked in the area for a while, go, oh, I'm not sure about that. But who am I to say don't try it? So I find that I think the pathways, there wasn't as many pathways in the past. It's mm-hmm. great we've got so much choice, but also that can be hard for parents having all those choices. So it's a balance there between that. But for me, I think technology's made the biggest difference both to educators and kids. For example, you know, I look back at the little boy I taught years ago. I wish we'd had iPads for him to communicate. He was nonverbal. You know, yes. oh my goodness, his world would have been so different having an iPad to communicate. And even the visuals that are available today, back then they were just hand-drawn, probably didn't mean much to him, hence why he didn't use them. Yeah. Absolutely. And I guess that's where probably some of your resources stem from because you maybe couldn't find what you needed or you saw there were gaps and you're like, I'll just create this myself. (laughs) Totally. And when I first wrote my first books, there were nothing out there and I'd go to Officeworks and print them off and spiral bound them myself. And now you can print them and get them online and eBooks. And my first newsletter, in fact, I was laughing because my first newsletter I wrote 20 years ago and I used to print it at Officeworks and hand fill them in envelopes and post to schools for free just out of like just wanting to make a difference and connect with people. So I just laugh sometimes how it used to be to get the information out there. And now people can just get that newsletter in their inbox straight away. You know, it's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah, I completely understand that. And I, I certainly look at the difference of being a speech pathologist now for about 20 years and wow, gosh, the way I used to work was so different back then to now. And there's certainly some amazing options that we can use to get the info out there and get the awareness out there. Definitely. So today, with our focus being on practical teaching strategies when it comes to autism, we're probably talking a little more to educators in that teaching environment. 
However, within that, there really is a huge amount that can be utilized and transitioned across to the home and the community environments, I'd imagine. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think that consistency is so important, particularly with children with autism, because otherwise we confuse them. But also there's a lot of research that shows children don't transfer skills. So they might use a visual to communicate at school, but not use it at home unless everyone's consistent. And for me, that's so important. We all work together to create that long-term learning for the child and making sure that they're using skills across all environments and with people. Because otherwise they'll learn it with you at speech, but not use it in the classroom. So we all need that consistency to tie it together for the child. Because in my experience, many children with autism compartmentalise learning. So we have to create that bridges of learning for them. And that really only comes through everyone expecting the same thing from them. Yeah, Absolutely. Being on the same page, collaborating, mm. there's often a team kind of approach. And that communication is just huge. But certainly highlighting that point that, yes, children can be very specific to the context in which they're learning something. So that extra step of or goal of we need to transfer this skill to this environment. Now we transfer it to that context is very much a goal in itself. Definitely. Yeah. And just a quick tip on that. That's where I love having a WhatsApp group which has like a teacher, your teacher aide, your speechy, your OT, your parents. So we're not all having to talk to each other. If I'm introducing a concept to a child or a visual, I can make a quick video on WhatsApp and go, guys, this is what we're doing today, even show the child being successful. So it's just a quick communication across everyone. And for me, that technology has just been amazing where I can just quickly go, everyone, you know, grandparents, daycare, after school care, all the key stakeholders are just in that one WhatsApp group and I can just go, this is what we're doing. Done. Yeah. That is amazing. So obvious, but then I'm like, why <laughs> did I think of that? So, absolutely. Because there's always emails yeah. and phone calls and no, all sorts of things going on. No, no, of no. course. It's too like much just, to keep up on. It's yes. too much for families who have got enough to deal with. They can just like to see that, okay, this is what we're doing. Or even just sharing those little successes as a teacher, like, look, he ate that sandwich today, yay, (laughs) whatever it is, you know. Yeah, sharing the success. That's a really, really good idea. Thank you, Sue, for sharing that one. So um, I've got to just cover off on a really obvious question just for any listeners that aren't aware. Can you give us the brief on just, you know, what is an autism spectrum disorder? So just taking a step back for anyone that's just not too sure on the definition. Yeah, look, I mean, autism spectrum disorder, I'll be honest, I still don't know what it is because every child I meet is so different. So I'd love to go, look, here's what you do or here's the blood test. It's not that simple. But the best way to understand it, it's a different way of engaging and thinking in both social, sensory, communication, behaviour. You know, it's across all those areas. But for me, it's just understanding that child thinks and engages differently. Now, having worked with so many kids on the spectrum, each of the children I work with, that looks quite different. And I've worked with twins who are identical and it looks different for them, you know, even though they're both on the spectrum, girls versus boys. So I would love to give your listeners an easy understanding. But if you understand that for some children, it's about the social, for some it's about behaviour, some sensory, some communication, and each of those children, it would look different, but it has to impact on all those areas to be called autism spectrum. So you might have a child who's selective mute, but that mightn't be called autism because the other areas aren't impacted. Yeah. 
That's right. That's right. And it is the diagnosis and how it's made is something that I actually talked about way back in episode 16 with a pediatrician. So we kind of get into the medical side, but I love the way that you've described it, you know, and those domains and that different way of just thinking and engaging. Cause I think it just summarizes it quite mm. nicely. So you know, a diagnosis is made. What do you typically say is next, you know, for parents and even for educators, like what's next? Okay. So what's next? is for me actually just to take a step and give yourself time, whatever time you need, to just gather your thoughts. And for some of my parents, just giving them time to understand what that means and understand their child hasn't changed. They're still the same gorgeous child that before the label. And no one wants to label kids. But without a label, children tend to be judged like, oh, they're behaving or their separation anxiety or they're like in a preschool or they won't sit on the mat with the other children so people tend to in my experience notice the behavior and the child engaging differently so once you've got a diagnosis you can now go okay we can put in place the right supports now for me I'd probably be heading straight to you guys because I find the speech he gives me that wrap around what's next they'll be the one who says okay so let's get some OT here, let's get this early intervention. But I think you need your one go-to person, not 100 go-to people. Yeah. And in my experiences, speeches tend to give me that overriding what we need to do, both learning, socially, sensory, because you guys tend to have more of that overview and engagement. Whereas if I go straight to an occupational therapist, they often don't give me those same insights. So that's just me. Everyone's yes. different, but I would probably start with finding a speechy that I, A, can get into. I know <laughs> some parents listening will be like, that's nice of you to recommend that, Sue. Have you seen the waiting list? And yeah. I understand that, but that's where I'd get, go to first. I yes. don't know. I'd love your input on that too, but yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And for us as speech pathologists, a lot of the time we see children who are yet to have a diagnosis. So we're seeing them pre-diagnosis phase, if you like. and we often will recognize that, but professionally, we can't actually say, actually, you know, we think your child, it's just not our professional place ethically to say that. However, we do certainly encourage and really guide the parent to go for that developmental pediatrician assessment. And, you know, more often than not, parents do. They trust the advice, they follow up, and the label is made where appropriate. But for us and the way we work, yes, we're holistic in our view. And I think that was what you were kind of alluding to. And for us, our approach doesn't really change. So pre-diagnosis, we see what we see and we work with what we need to do. So once that label comes in, it just allows the process to start for the parents in terms of understanding, acceptance, following up other steps, etc. But for us, and I guess the type of intervention we're kind of doing the same thing, if that makes sense. We're working on communication skills, we're working on engagement, we're working on social skills, we're working on all those things, label or no label. But certainly if the label is there and in Australia anyway, it allows more access to things you know, like funding, like support, which we really want to get that early intervention, that team approach happening as quickly as we can. So that's part of kind of the plus of having a label to just use it in the right way, really but certainly not to use it to label your child. <laughs> As teachers, we're in the same position where I can't say a child needs a diagnosis. I can only guide or direct people. And if there is any teachers listening, 
I just find the best way to go about it is to actually say to the educator, to the parents, let's just rule it out. Let's just check that I'm not missing anything. I think you've got to be really careful throwing around labels or making guesses. You're best to leave that to your paediatrician. And I'd encourage people to listen to that episode that you recorded because I've just found in the past just to go in nicely with let's rule out that's a nicer conversation than I think something's wrong. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it is a gentler approach because you just don't know if there's something else going on. You don't necessarily know that that child's medical history to really understand it. So assumptions are a little bit, yeah, we've got to move forward with caution there. Yes, yes. So at what point are you finding people looking you up? Is it like the respite worker you mentioned earlier where they're just found in a situation like, oh, this is a new situation and they start searching like, oh, here's Sue Larky. Like what's the theme that people come to you? Oh, that is such a great question. Look, I get all sorts of people, a lot of referrals from people. Like so a parent will find out through a school or school will find out through a parent I mean, I am shocked at the moment I'm getting more and more kids diagnosed, not till secondary school. And actually interesting, when you look back, they probably saw a speechy in early childhood, had a little bit of help then, and then sort of launched off into school. And then they hit secondary school and things becomes more obvious they're on the spectrum. And when you look back in their records, there was probably some indicators along the way, but when they get to secondary and a little bit of that is just secondary schools are so much more complex, so many more subjects, so many more teachers and it sort of makes sense. And I think a lot bigger places, like a lot of these kids might've gone to a smaller secondary school in the past, but they might've lived out of regional New South Wales and gone into Dubbo, but the school might've had 300 kids and now got 500. And that's where the ASD often becomes more, more obvious. Yeah. Yeah. More apparent. Yeah. It's really Mm. interesting, isn't it? So we've already talked about the importance of early intervention and that's something I've discussed previously, but I think really that the core message is as educators, if you're noticing, you know, signs or red flags or uncertainty, have that conversation with parents and just gently encourage them to see a pediatrician, see a speech pathologist, perhaps if there's communication or literacy areas or whatever it may be, but just someone to just start the process. So we see fantastic results with early intervention. So I think generally we're both on the same page with that one, Sue. Absolutely. I mean, early intervention is absolute key. I mean, when I go into a school, I was in a school this week and one of the teachers said to me, oh, I don't really see the autism. Have you seen how much speech OT this kid's had? Like the reason you don't see it is because of all that work. And sometimes I have to say that, look, it's because this child has had so much good OT, speech, early intervention, parents doing stuff at home. That's why the child's sitting on the mat. If that child hadn't had all that, they wouldn't be sitting on the mat right now, I promise you. You know, So that's where it can sometimes be a double-edged sword, though, for me, the way schools will be like, I can't see it. And I'm like, yeah, because we've done good work together. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So, Sue, you offer a range of resources and workshops, and I'm going to have a guess at your overarching theme. I'm in a position where I probably have a bit of a good idea, but my guess at the overarching themes for all your resources and workshops would be behaviour and transitioning between tasks. Another Mm -hmm. area would be communication, and another big area would be sensory needs. Does that pretty much match your overarching themes? Absolutely. But I also think about 
increasing engagement and participation for kids who aren't getting anything out of your normal reading program or your everyday maths, like any kid who doesn't fit in. And in fact, the school I was in this week, the school principal's amazing. And she said to me, so I've decided we should just teach every class like they're an autism class because your stuff works for the whole class. And I thought, yay, that is true because you're getting more and more complex classrooms, you're getting more and more kids who can't regulate their emotions and, you know, they mightn't have a diagnosis, but it's actually these strategies are probably helpful for all the kids, yeah. Absolutely, and I think we need to get into the strategies, Sue. Okay. So I guess just to start with, can you tell me the biggest area that for educators where they need their support within the classroom? So actually within the classroom, the biggest issue many teachers face is getting these kids started. So getting them from the mat to their desk and getting them working or from their desk to another activity. So that transitioning between, because there's so much, as you would know, with that executive functioning, planning, remembering, working memory, all that stuff. That for And then the sensory. So a kid gets up to move with 30 other kids and a lot goes on. So really all those scenes you said I cover all happen most when a child's moving from one environment to another. So in the classroom, that's where they need the most support. And that it can even be from home to school to start the day too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So what are your top three strategies when it comes to transitioning between tasks or between activities? Yeah. So I think routine, it's like a big full stop and start a new sentence rather than that moving from the mat to the table and the child always get them to walk the same way, open their book in the same spot. You know, the more routines, the better. So that they always have a getting started routine, which when I went to school and some people were listening or remember sort of rule up your page, write the date. Well, some of my kids nearly need those routines to get started again. Like otherwise they just sit there and not sure how to start. So it's that getting started. I mean, like going to the gym, they say putting on your shoes is the hardest part once your shoes are on. For some of my kids, it's that getting started. For the other big thing, I think with that transitioning is teachers often start yelling. You know, it's keeping that voice clear, concise, making sure that you're not overwhelming with verbal instructions. So using your visuals. Yeah. 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 Visuals are huge. That would be a huge uh, support for transitioning. Okay. Any other top strategy for transitioning between tasks? I'm the queen of the time timer. I just think a visual timer to pre-warn the child that they're moving, say, in an early childhood setting from outside to inside, giving the child that 10-minute warning so they've got time to finish what they're doing, giving them a 10 or 5-minute, depending on the kid, 5-minute warning and, the you know, just even moving, how long are we going to sit on the mat before we go to the chair or from the chair to this activity? So timers are my absolute favourite. And if any of your listeners haven't seen the time timers, I'd encourage them to jump on my website. They're a game changer because they visually move back, they make a small beep, they tell the child visually what's happening and they're designed for kids with autism. So they're just amazing. They're amazing. Yeah. And can I just say those strategies are just good for anyone, any child, yeah. probably even yes. adults, but any child, really, they're mm. really effective strategies. Thank yeah. you. So what about your top three strategies for connection and engagement? Because this can be a really challenging area for professionals working with children. Yeah. And look, I know this sounds really so obvious, but it's so true. It's about getting down to that child's level and joining them in what they're doing, not what you want them to do, you know. So 
one of my little boys, Vinny, he loves feathers. Well, I know you had out some other lovely craft activity, but he loves feathers. So let's do feathers. Or if you've got a kid who loves being outside on the slide, well, you can teach everything around the slide. Or if you've got a kid who doesn't, well, one of my favourite boys I taught many years ago, it wasn't very motivated by anything, he loved a foot spa. Well, I can tell you, we did foot spas every day and I can teach language, counting, communication, picture exchange, all around a foot spa. (laughs) Yeah, perfect. It's really about joining them in their interests, not forcing them into your interests. Yes, yes, absolutely. Following their lead and really Mm. just working out very quickly what motivates them, what are their interests. Perfect. I'd say that's definitely the top one. Are there any other ones you wanted to add to that? The other big one that I learned when I was at the autism school is just to add one more step or one more minute. Like don't try and suddenly get 20 minutes of work out of them. Just add one more minute at a time. So say the child's only sitting on the mat for five minutes or doing a work task for five minutes. Let's just add one more minute for a whole week. Just get one more minute till that's consistent. Because in 10 weeks, actually they're going to be sitting for 15 minutes. You know, just trying to add that little bit or one more word, not trying to do too much because I think what happens, we make these big goals and then all of us go, oh, we're not getting anywhere. Well, we made too big a step. You know, it's those tiny little steps and getting the consistency. So that one minute across five days, good. Now we can add another minute and another minute. But I think so often people write these amazing learning plans or communication, or you would have seen it with pecs and stuff where they bring in these folders with 100 visuals and the kid's only using five. Well, yes. let's just start with the five. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. it makes total sense. And I'm with yeah, you. Yeah. And I kind of, I listen to that and I think very much about, you know, how we work at the clinic and with the team where we're talking often about setting children up for success by Mm -hmm. setting realistic goals and expectations and communicating those goals and expectations to the team, to the educators, to the parents. So everyone's aware that, you know, it's actually a success if we get one more minute, that we haven't failed because they haven't got the 10 minutes we're hoping for. Exactly. No. And it's so important. And also for parents, I think otherwise they feel like they're failing or they get disheartened. I mean, their parents are really busy. They're working. They've got other kids. They've got other commitments. You know, if we're just aiming for one more minute or one more word or one, it just yeah. feels more achievable for Absolutely. everyone. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, totally agree. Totally agree. What about when it comes to strategies for understanding and responding to behaviour of children on the spectrum? This could be a topic in itself, yeah. but what are a few kind they of... Could. Key strategies with this one, Sue. Yeah, look, I think with behaviour, it's all about just being real that behaviour is there for a reason. You will not always know the reason. I haven't worked with a kid yet, haven't wanted to climb in their brain and want to know the reason. But just accepting up front, the child is doing that behaviour for a reason, whether it's sensory, emotional, whether it's wanting something, like behaviour's for a reason, you know. And I think them putting yourself in their shoes like really putting yourself in their shoes and imagining if you had autism, how would that feel? If you had autism and you loved watching Dora on the video, on your iPad and someone made you stop it and you didn't know when you were going to get to finish it, well, wouldn't you smash your iPad? You know? <laughs> or, yeah, have a, a reaction, yeah. Yeah, like just really trying to understand that child and 
I mean, your listeners are welcome to listen to my podcast I did last year, but I thought I really understood what it was like to be nonverbal. But I had an operation last year and they paralyzed my vocal cord and I could not speak. And it was the most insightful, like unbelievable experience for me. And I had done that thing, oh, I won't talk for half an hour. But the difference is you knew when you could talk, but not knowing when I was going to talk again, massive impact on anxiety, la, la, la. So, you know, put yourself in the kid's shoes and then I now say times it by 10. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's yeah. not just putting yourself in their shoes. It's actually putting yourself in their shoes and going, well, imagine that in everything in your life, you know. That's right. Not being able to, emotions coming on really fast. So I think putting yourself in this kid's shoes makes the biggest difference. Absolutely. No, I completely agree. And, you know, you touched on the point that we often do take communication for granted. Most people do. Speech pathologists kind of see how it's compromised. And so we kind of, can put things in perspective a little, but we certainly do take it for granted. And often with behavior, that is a form of communication Mm, in itself. So you're right. It's about going, okay. And this is kind of the talking to psychologists going, well, what, what happened before and what happened during, you know, and just kind of reflecting on that. And look, that can be a challenge, Sue, for parents and educators who just, what's the word? They're just multitasking constantly there's so many demands and pressures and that ability to have the ideal response it's just not always there you know the guilt is there afterwards like oh maybe I shouldn't have raised my voice or had an angry tone or been impatient you know that stuff goes on so I think realistically on occasion it's going to happen I think as as educators and parents, we need our own strategies. And that's, again, another topic of how do we manage ourselves best so that we can be at our best because it can take a lot of energy. So I guess that response to behavior is getting into their shoes, really understanding their world and knowing that that's a form of communication. And that's going to help us learn a little more about our child, really, I say, in terms of what they're trying to get across and how we can respond to it more appropriately. Are there any other things you wanted to add to that? Would they be the top two? Yeah, I think the other one, and it just touches on what you said about us, our relationship to the situation, it's just remembering to tell the child what to do, not what not to do. So yeah, that's huge. Yeah. There's no point telling your kid no hitting. Tell them, put your hand out to request that. Or, you know, there's no point telling a child, you know, no running away, hold my hand. Like, you must tell them the action required because children with autism spectrum have a thing called mind blindness, which means they can't predict what they're meant to do. So that's why words like no trigger a meltdown because they hear never. So you don't say no, it's when and then. Now, as a speechy and as a teacher, we've sort of adapted and that's part of our life every day. We know to avoid certain words. But for people who are new to this, I find that's the biggest thing, getting them to understand that you need to be explicit and positive. Like negatives don't mean anything to this child saying, don't do this, don't do that. You've actually got to tell them what to do and clear instructions. Yeah. Yes. That is a huge area. And it does take practice to the point that then it becomes a natural way of communicating. But yes, thank you for bringing that up because it's a massive, massive kind of new behavioral way of communicating for many of us. So how about sensory needs? We've talked about sensory a little bit. So before we look at the strategies for addressing sensory needs, can you just give us like a real brief on 
what they are. Like, what is sensory? Most yeah. professionals out there will know, but, you know, let's just cover that off. Yeah, no, totally. So with sensory, children will over or underreact. So we'll have a child who puts everything in their mouth and children who eats very limited foods. We'll have children who love, you know, deep pressure and rolling around and rough and tumble and other kids, the slightest touch, they'll be crying. You know, so sensory affects all the senses. The one people forget is movement. So there'll be children who love swinging and constant movement and there'll be other children who would never climb up on top of your monkey bars because they don't like their body in space off the ground, you know. So it affects all areas. The big one that we're talking about now is called interception, which is kids who don't know they need the toilet till they're busting or don't know to drink until they're so thirsty they drink the whole bottle. So that also, so it's not just regulating your senses, it's also regulating your needs like thirst and food and those things, yeah. And that internal feedback. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fascinating. So what are your top three strategies for the educators and for the parents out there when it comes to addressing those sensory needs? Okay, well, my biggest challenge with sensory is you can't see it, that people are like, oh, why do they need that fidget toy? Isn't it a distraction? So it's trying to get people to understand that sensory tools are just like my glasses. So the kid who needs a little fidget toy, it's no different to me needing my glasses. My glasses help me focus, stay engaged, more independent, less headaches. And if I give a kid the right sensory tool, whether it's a fidget tool or a weighted thing, I'll get the same focus, concentration. So getting people to see sensory tools are just as important as my glasses, to me, is a key strategy. But also making people understand that just like everyone has different lenses in their glasses, every child has different sensory needs. And I mean, my mum only wears her glasses for reading. I wear my glasses all day. For some children might need those reminding to drink every day in a routine. Some might just need it when they're at after school care because they're out of routine. Does that, you know, Mm. so understanding that each child's sensory needs are very, very different, but also this is where your occupational therapist for children who have massive sensory reactions can help desensitize or just calm the senses. It's never going to change them, but help the children regulate them a little bit better. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. And that's kind of covered that area because it is a big area. It is a very big area. And parents and educators, they get to know kind of that sensory profile just from, you know, being with the child on a day to day, like, oh, Johnny doesn't like loud noises, or this is what he does when, you know, the lights are too bright in that room. Or So they start to make those sensory observations anyway. But, you know, our little conversation about it now just helps to put it into perspective and to get the profile. And that's where occupational therapists do help enormously. So what about maybe just a top tip for communication? I probably should be talking about this one, but you tell me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, we sort of touched on it. You know, it's really about starting with their interest. So my boy, Dan, the foot spa was his favourite thing. The first visual he ever used was a photo of the foot spa. He had no interest in anything else on my visual schedule, but if the foot spa was there, he would grab it off and give it to me and move it to the top. And the way I look at communication, it's like taking a fantastic photo. You know, you've got to catch the right moment for communication and you speeches get very good at catching those moments, but in a busy classroom, it can be harder to capture those moments. So 
you know when you take a photo one minute before you would have had a horrible face and one minute after you would have had your eyes closed it's catching the child when they're most motivated and really want something and make it so say a kid really wants to go outside well you've got the photo of outside right next to the door so they can give it to you not oh hang on I'll just go and find that visual you know and it's capturing those right moments and making what I call a communication enriched environment where you've got lots of visuals, lots of photos. And someone asked me recently, like, oh, so do you, like, which communication method do you use? And it made me realise it's like all of us. We use body language, we use words, we use gesture. You have to be eclectic. There isn't just one system and it's getting people to get their head around that, that we're eclectic communicators and so should kids on the spectrum be eclectic communicators. Yeah, absolutely. And that's very much how we work is using all the various modalities and kind of trialing what does the child respond to, what's their preference in terms of responding to things. And often when they are, uh, you know, perhaps young and nonverbal, yes, we are using lots of visuals and we are using or introducing sign language. And sometimes we do introduce technology through an iPad, etc. And sometimes it can be a fear that often that that's a replacement for them speaking. And a big thing we talk about often is that it's not, it can often stimulate the verbalizations to occur. So it's just an important point. I thought I should just pop in there, re kind of our approach to communication. But the biggest thing we want to do is empower the child to have a tool to be able to communicate and give them some control around their environment, their wants and needs. That's absolutely so important. So important. And In my experience, having those range of communication never stops them learning to verbalise because a kid would much rather verbalise if they can. And I've had kids start verbalising at eight who have used signing, you know, a whole lot of stuff building up to eight. And then once the words came, the words came. And they still use those sometimes, but once a kid has words, they're going to use that or even sound. I had a class of eight non-verbal kids and they all had different sounds that I learnt meant different things so if they can make a sound they will make a sound absolutely yeah yeah fantastic that is amazing I love all the super practical stuff I really do because I think you know that's what we all need you know for fellow colleagues out there educators professionals carers etc and I'm very mindful of time but one thing that perhaps you can guide us as to where to get more info on this because we've talked about a lot about the classroom and home kind of environments I would say the playground, being out on the playground would be, you know, a big topic that you would talk about quite a bit because it is part of school life, so part of the child's world, most part of the week. Is there anything brief you wanted to touch on there or lead us as to where we can find more info about playground tips and strategies? Yeah, look, absolutely. I've got some really good information on my blog if they go to my website just on the blog there's some great stuff about setting up passive playgrounds also helping children regulate emotions in the playground making friends and keeping friends because many of my kids will make a friend and then burn them out really fast and that can be upsetting both for educators and parents that oh they finally made a friend and then three weeks later no so yeah, I would highly recommend that they, people have a look because there's some really good quick tip sheets. And what I'd recommend with the tip sheets, you can sort of go, done it, done it, oh, that one's not going to work. Oh, there's one. Like, not every strategy works for everybody or every school. But the school I was in this week, for example, set up the buddy benches and it's working brilliantly. But they're only a school of 400. But I find once you get over like 600 kids, it doesn't always work. So, yeah. no, you know, trying different things. But 
can I just say, I think most parents send their child to mainstream school wanting their child to make social connections. Yes. And we don't talk about that enough. We talk about, you know, NAPLAN doesn't measure it. Mm. (laughs) But the Mm. truth is parents send their child to their local school wanting their child to make friends and connections and yet we don't even put it on the report. And for my kids with Asperger's, it's often the most stressful part of the day being in the playground. So I really love the fact you brought it up because for me, it's my passion that we help children with that socialisation, connection, friendships, and ensure that they have a great time in their breaks. Like the other kids, that's their favourite part of the day. And this kid often comes back more stressed than they went out. What's that telling us? Put ourselves in their shoes, like I say, and imagine being out in the playground and not understanding the rules or having no one to play with or feeling lonely, you know, it breaks my heart. So that's why I've written lots of tip sheets and ideas and I really would encourage people to have a look at that and really think about how can we ensure this kid has an amazing experience in the playground. Yeah, 100%. We want our kids to be happy and be happy to go to school and for it to be a battle every day. And that's going to happen through, you know, not just enjoying learning, it's really going to happen through, I'm looking forward to seeing my friends. Correct. And engaging with them. Yes. So your tips and tricks and strategies and everything else that you've talked about and particularly the playground topic too, is that all on your Sulaki website? It is. Yeah. So just www.sulaki and Larky is L-A-R-K-E-Y. Yeah. .com.au. Yeah. Fantastic. Perfect. Thank you so much, Sue. Do you have a final kind of statement take home message for our listeners, both parents and professionals? Yeah, I'm going to share with you my all-time favourite saying, which is embrace difference to make a difference. And to me, if you just embrace these kids, embrace their differences, love them for who they are, you know, that's what keeps my passion going because I just adore these kids and their families. And if you can just embrace difference to make a difference, you'll love it. You'll love it. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Sue Larkey, for joining the Chat About Children today. Absolute pleasure. What a wonderfully insightful chat there with Sue Larkey, sharing some really valuable practical strategies when it comes to best supporting children who are on the autism spectrum. If you have enjoyed today's episode and really felt that there were some valuable nuggets of information, it would be fantastic for you to share this episode with your friends, family and colleagues. And if you haven't already done so, please feel free to leave a review for the Chat About Children podcast. Chataboutchildren.com is the website that you can go to to have a look at our previous episodes. And as mentioned uh, during this episode, uh, number 16 is where I talk to a pediatrician about uh, diagnosis of autism spectrum and really looking at those red flags and indicators. So if that's something that you feel you need to or would like to learn a little bit more about, do check out episode 16. And as Sue mentioned, her resources and her courses and workshops are listed on her website, www.sulaki.com.au. So please do check that out also. I look forward to chatting to you next time. I appreciate you. Chat soon. Thanks for joining the Chat About Children with Sonia Vestalich, www.chataboutchildren.com.